At Federal, we have products for every season and every pursuit. Our passionate and dedicated teams design, build, and deliver the world's best American-made ammunition, whether you're hunting, target shooting, or defending yourself and family. Our pride and hard work can be found in every box, ammo can, or bottle of ammunition. For us, it's always in season. It's federal season. Welcome to Federal Ammunition's podcast, It's Federal Season. I'm Julie Golub, your guest host for this episode. I'm so excited to host this podcast now into its third year. And as always, It's Federal Season features a knowledgeable guest. And today is no exception as I am joined by Ashley Hablinski. <laughs> Ashley was the curator of the Buffalo Bill Center of the West's Cody Firearms Museum and the project director for the museum's multi-million dollar renovation. She is now the president of the consulting group, The Gun Code, and is a highly sought after museum and history consultant, guest lecturer, writer, expert witness, television host, and producer. In honor of Women's History Month, she is a wonderful guest for us, not only to talk about her experiences, but also the history of women and guns. Ashley, welcome to It's Federal Season. Thank you for having me. I always like, I feel oh, like that's so too ex- long of an intro. I got to like pair that down. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a rock star, especially in the in the firearms industry. But from a historian aspect, you, you bring such youth and energy. And as a woman, oh, I'm so excited to talk to you today. So I have had the pleasure of working with you on various different projects over the years, but I never had a chance to sit down and talk about how you got started and hear your story. So I'd love for you to tell us more about what made you want to go into this field and maybe tell us a bit uh, about how someone goes about going through that. Yeah, so I kind of came to the firearms realm from a circuitous route. So I grew up, I didn't grow up around guns, although I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, So there's a lot of firearms there, but uh, I did not grow up around them at all. My mom's a physics teacher, professional figure skating, and my dad manages a recreation facility and plays golf. So not a part of my culture (laughs) growing up at all. Uh, And so I spent uh, most of my childhood wanting to be a doctor because I spent a lot of time uh, in and out of the operating room. I was in a wheelchair for a little bit in middle school. And so I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so when I went into college, that was my plan. That was the track I was going on. And, uh, and you could not argue with me. I mean, there was no changing it until I changed it my <laughs> freshman year of college. Um, and so I was always interested in the history of medicine. And I guess it just never really like clicked in my brain that, you know, people work at historic sites and that could be a job. Um, so I went on a Civil War medicine tour in Gettysburg, which is like three hours from where I grew up. And they were talking about how the advancements of weapons technology, specifically ammunition technology, which is something people don't talk about enough but it's equally as important. Um, But the way that ammunition technology changed between the revolution and the Civil War and how that caused different types of wounds, which then, you know, subsequently caused different types of medical procedures. And I thought that was really interesting. And then I went to Colonial Williamsburg, got a similar spiel, but different type of technology. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go the history route, which if you know anything about history majors, is not always the smartest route to go because many of them are unemployed uh, or not working in the field. So you have very few ways that you can go with the history major if you actually want to work in history. And so I um, 
changed my major to history. My mom said I better have a job when I graduate. So I had to work very hard to get to that. Um, and I basically did every internship uh, I could get my hands on. So the first internship I had was at a military museum in Pittsburgh called Soldiers and Sailors Museum. And it was the first time I'd ever encountered guns, held a gun. Um, and so basically they gave me like 200 guns from a collection. And I had to identify what they were, what had been modified, you know, all of that cataloging information. And I just got hooked. So um, I worked there all summer. And there was ultimately there was a gun that was on display there as an Enfield from the Civil War that the soldier had hand carved every battle that he fought in into the stock. Yeah. Oh, wow. And um, that was kind of a moment for me where I was like, this is a story about people. You know, it's not just a technological history. This is a story about people. There's a lot more going on here. And so I changed my major. I made sure that I actually learned how to shoot guns, modern and historic, because it's so technologically oriented that you kind of have to do both if you're going to study them. And it took off from there. So you literally went from medicine to learning about guns to actually handling one for the first time. And then your interest in firearms kind of escalated from there. Yeah, as, as Ted Koppel put it, you went from wanting to save lives to things that take them. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but it's such a neat way because so many people get involved with shooting and owning a firearm from a different route, and you came at it from a completely different direction. Yeah, no, it was it's totally weird. And I think a lot of people assume I grew up around firearms. I think a lot of people assume I'm a better shot than I am, um, you know, because people assume that if you're interested in firearms, then that, you know, your interest comes from the shooting world and mine comes from the academic world. And I learned to shoot kind of as a necessity for understanding the technologies. And so I've had a blast, pun intended, I guess, uh, <laughs> trying to get to know everything because, you know, you almost had to play. I had to play a little bit of catch up in my field. And I've had a lot of really great mentors working at the Smithsonian when I was in college and graduate school, and then ultimately out in Cody to kind of help me understand 700 years of history, because the collections that I work with and have worked with represent all of it. So I've definitely had to get uh, good at understanding quick changes in technology very fast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the hardest questions that I get um, is, you know, what's your favorite gun? <laughs> I hate answering it. It's like asking a girl to choose. I make something up every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, though, it's 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 very challenging. But I'm going to ask you a similar question, especially from the historical standpoint. And this may be tough, but do you have a favorite era of firearms history in all of the 700 years that you've been working with? Um, so a favorite era is easier than favorite firearm. So that's good. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> uh, favorite era, probably one of the earlier ones, probably the 1400s um, into okay. the 1500s, because you get your first ignition system, the match lock, and then it morphs into the wheel lock by the turn of the 16th century, so the early 1500s. Um, towards the end of the 1400s, you get rifling. And so you see a lot of technology that's developed from the 1400s up through, you know, really 1600, that is a lot more advanced than you would assume. Um, technologically speaking, I mean, you have breech loaders uh, by the early 1600s. In some cases, the 1500s, you had magazine-fed firearms. Um, so it's kind of this moment in history where you see a lot of things that we associate as more modern technology kind of at the beginning of it. Um, one of those things okay. as well is the shooting sports competitions. The earliest recorded shooting sports competition is 1475. 
So you see a lot of these things that we associate as totally modern, but you know, this is kind of the beginning of that story. Okay, so I got to know, what were they doing in 1475? Oh, gosh. Uh, the, the, I don't know exactly the 1475 one, but there, I do have a, a, a whole document on a, a metal from the early 1500s and 1530s, wow. I think. And so those, um, those competitions were actually really interesting. So you, know, you, you see the beginning of the firing line and all of those safe handling procedures. They were using match locks initially, um, which basically sounds like what it is. It's using an open flame. Um, a big long cord that's lit on both ends and you use that to ignite the powder to fire the gun. Um, yeah. And so you start with the match lock and then as soon as you get the wheel lock, which again operates similar to how you'd think it does off of a wheel, but with internal, it really an early internal combustion component where you have a, a serrated disc and a piece of pyrite that will, when you wind the disc up and press the trigger, causes the disc to spin and spark. And then that goes into the barrel and, and fires the gun. Um, so that was a lot more reliable. And so as soon as they can have those, you see those appear a lot on the in the competitions. But what's interesting about that is that it was a huge thing. Um, so in one of the examples, there was like a, you know, People magazine of its day, it was the Mercure Gallant. And um, they, you know, reported on it. And there were, you know, thousands of people coming from all over the region to shoot. And there was uh, actually might have been tens of thousands of people that came to shoot at this one competition. It was so popular. And you see that kind of through the history of shooting sports competitions, um, especially in America in the 19th century. Um, It's a huge spectator sport, too, which I guess you don't really see as much in the shooting sports today. But yeah, it was so popular. There were these really cool medallions you would get if you won. There were like some there were were like 36 pages in the rule book for one of them. You know, it was crazy. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I love listening to you talk about guns because um, y- y- you're just like this like knowledge-packed person that knows so many things. It's, it's amazing. But I think one of the coolest things about what you get to do is that you get to handle so many of these incredible relics. Is there a standout firearm or piece of weaponry or a metal or whatever that uh, is really special to you or you thought yeah that was amazing (laughs) um okay so it's a bit dark okay (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um so one of my clients right now is i'm helping to rebuild the la police museum and i haven't gotten a chance to handle a lot of the guns that are on display because we're working on the improvement of casework so they've got patty hearst m1 carbine haven't been able to touch it yet but i can stand next to it the north hollywood shootout guns but something they don't have on display right now um because uh they've got to go through there are active court cases and whatnot like as soon as they get the permission to display it they do uh, but i got to uh hold tex watson's gun from the uh, manson family Wow. I think that was, you know, that's like, I guess I see guns all the time. And so often in museums, you don't see the guns that were used, you know, by criminals. Uh, Getting a chance to hold something that was used in such a a negative way was just different for me because Cody didn't really have anything like that. The Smithsonian didn't really have anything like that. And so I know that's like super dark, but it was definitely... Definitely something that was uh, impactful and really shows you the power an artifact can have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on a, a happier note. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I was like, let's make it real dark here real fast. But it was one of the uh-huh. more recent things I held and I've never held anything quite like it. 
I can't even imagine. I mean, that's that's very impactful, as you said. Um, being Women's History Month and all, uh, and being a, a woman in your field, let's let's shift gears talking about women. Um, first, I want to know some personal stories. Do you have any fun or funny stories of you being a female firearms historian expert that you could share with us? If you have any, don't yeah, feel like you're all obligated. So my favorite one is more recent. So after Cody opened, PBS NewsHour came to do an interview with me and you know i was downstairs doing an interview and i they asked me about this question because that's always what they ask you know like have you had any discrimination because you're a woman in the field and i my answer has always been actually i found that early in my career i had more discrimination because of my age and how old i look rather than you know my gender and so i was like really the the gun community has been really great you know blah 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 blah." and we go (laughs) I go upstairs to do some like walking, you know, shots in the gallery. And this dude <laughs> literally very loudly doesn't realize that we're, you know, on camera and whatnot goes, what's a pretty little thing like you doing in a place <laughs> like this? And I was like, you just disproved everything I did, everything I said downstairs. And I was just like, oh, God, you just made me look like a liar. Uh, right. so the no, one time. Right? Like the one time that's happened in the gallery. Um, you know, it, it has to happen in front of PBS. Um, they did of not course. use that, by the way. But it was kind of funny because the, the host looked at me and I was like, <laughs> uh, but, yeah. I mean, you get some of the little lady things, but for the most part, um, anytime that I, you know, so here's another example that was one of my, not my assistant, but my curatorial assistant's favorite stories was he's retired, he's retired law enforcement and he did most of the inquiries for the museum. And so he, someone came in the, in the office and was asking him a question about a Walsh revolver, which is this like superimposed, superposed uh, revolver that has two cylinders um, on top of one another. And like, let me say, I don't know everything about guns. I just got really lucky that day. Um, so he's talking to Dan, um, and Dan is like looking it up, you know, and Dan knew everything about everything. But, um, I came out and was like, oh, you know, the Walsh revolver, blah, 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 blah. And the guy was like, I guess I like didn't notice it as much, but the two, I had two Dans that worked for me. Uh, they both were like looking cause the guy was like, <laughs> like back and forth. So if there was any concern about my gender or my age or whatever. Usually I talk really fast. So usually I was able to kind of like add in a lot of like factual information very quickly. So like the conversation, if there was going to be an uncomfortableness, there really wasn't because by the time, you know, we were able to do a back and forth there, it was obvious that I at least knew somewhat about what I was talking about. So I really don't have like, I mean, those were my two funny stories, but other than that of like going to a gun shop with random people who have no idea who I am. I mean, I've gotten that, but nothing really too exciting. That's that's good. I mean, that's, yeah. that's funny. But uh, so note to the listeners, if you need to listen to this podcast in, you know, slow, slow mode <laughs> yeah, you, you, <laughs> to catch you. everything that Ashley's saying, I'll try to talk <laughs> faster too. <laughs> so um, when it comes to women and guns, uh, most commonly people think of Little Miss Sure Shot, the great Annie Oakley. Um, do you have any stories about her or any other influential women in gun in the gun world that you can share with us? Yeah, so I may sound a little controversial in this statement, but Annie Oakley was wonderful and she's a legend and we all know that, but she wasn't the only yep. person. So Correct. I feel like a lot of times we get really... <laughs> We get really bogged down on her, which is certainly understandable because not only was she 
uh, an amazing shooter. And if you don't know the background on her, I mean, she had kind of a rough start. Um, her, her, I think it was her father passed away. So she ended up actually paying for their family's mortgage by selling meat that she hunted. But for a period of time, she was actually basically like an indentured servant, uh, for a very, very abusive, um, household. And so like her childhood's really kind of tumultuous. But then when she was, I think it was 15, um, Frank Butler, who was a well-known marksman came into town and, and, you know, basically challenged anyone, uh, to compete against him. And she won. Uh, they ultimately got married. We won't talk about their age difference because, you know, it was a different time. But, you know, she was a teenager. <laughs> we're like, we'll leave it like that. Um, you know, and then obviously she goes on uh, to work with Buffalo Bills Wild West. She, you know, has a lot of ranges where she teaches women to shoot. She was one of the first. Uh, she was a huge advocate for the women's right to vote. I mean, she really and she had a cool dog, too. Uh, and so she's really, you know, such an important figure in, for women in general. But I mean, when you look back in history, there are so many people early on that were women that were shooting. I mean, Catherine the Great is a great example, is a great example. Um, you know, she was a, a well-known huntress um, and the Smithsonian's got a couple of her hunting rifles. And then Cody has uh, a presentation blunderbuss that she gave to King Louis XV of France, which we're not 100 percent sure why um, it was right around that there was like a peace treaty. Um, but if you also know your Catherine the Great history, you also know that she was known for her many dalliances. So who knows? I'm just saying, who knows? Um, but you know, you, but there were also um, guns made specifically for women um, in the 1600s, and so they were customers back then. Um, you know, up into the 1700s, there's actually um, surveys of colonies where they do divide it between men and women. So it's an acknowledgement of, you know, they do like these these accounting of how many firearms and cannons uh, there were in personal um, ownership in the colonies and it was divided between men and women. So clearly, you know, it was a common occurrence then. And it just continued to be more and more popular. You go out west, women are going out west by themselves or going out west with other people. They're obviously carrying firearms for protection for hunting. Uh, target shooting was very popular as well. Um, and then in the Annie Oakley sphere, I love talking about Lillian Smith because nobody talks about Lillian Smith. Um, and Lillian so talk Smith, about Lillian. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to talk about Lillian Smith. So Lillian Smith is the kind of the antithesis to Annie Oakley, and that's why people don't talk about her. Um, I read an article years ago about the cool girl and why the cool girl ultimately falls out of favor with like everybody loves her for a while, but then she falls out of favor. And that was kind of the story of Lillian Smith. So she was a competitive shooter. She set world records for the rest of her life, even though she kind of fell out of favor with the population. Um, she was a part of Buffalo Bills Wild West. Uh, she was part of the reason that Annie Oakley left for a period of time because they were not friends. Uh, ah. So she was younger, um, more brash, and you know she was known for you know her her flashy outfits and the way that she talked and you know, be an equally good shooter. And actually Buffalo Bill like loved her. I mean, he, I mean, he thought so much of her and there's like a rumor that there's the whole thing about Annie Oakley changing her age. And one of the, one of the stories I don't, I've never researched if it's fully true is that one of the reasons for the inspiration to change her age was because she was, you know, threatened by Lillian Smith. Um, but Lillian Smith, you know, was with Buffalo Bill's Wild West. But then the interesting kind of demise of her life was that when they were in England, um, and here's another interesting thing about like what a cool girl can get away with versus like, you know, other people <laughs> is she, I think it was the queen. I could be wrong, but I think it was the queen 
she shook the queen's hand. Um, at, ah. I think, yeah, I'm thinking about if I'm remembering the story correctly. I did not do any prep on this. Um, so <laughs> Annie Oakley did too. And Annie Oakley got a lot of crap for it. And she did not. Um, about disrespecting, you know, the, the royal family. And so then at Wimbledon, um, not tennis, but at Wimbledon, she, Lillian Smith had a very poor showing. And something just kind of broke in the, like, media and public representation of her that like she was a a fake shooter that she wasn't that good and then like after that it like spiraled out of control where you know it was you know all kinds of negatives all the things they thought were cool all of a sudden became serious negatives to her and um you know her many affairs became very public um but you know again like you know not too much earlier all of those things were the quirky lillian smith and then everyone turned on her and she left buffalo bills wild west annie oakley came back to buffalo bills wild west and um it was you know so i like talking about women like that because they don't necessarily fit the mold of your perfect you know image of what a woman shooter should be but she was accomplished and she was kind of vilified by the media because of a bad showing and then they took all those traits that they thought were so edgy and they turned those against her too which is kind of fascinating wow that is fascinating um you know when you talk about lillian or annie and then also when you referenced the women back in the 1600s that were part of shooting sports Um, the marketing to women has certainly changed (laughs) over these many years. Um, as a historian, can you kind of share your thoughts about this evolution? Yeah. Uh, the marketing to women is fascinating because you say it has changed, but like, mm, I got a story about where it hasn't. So, um, early, like, so let's talk about the modern marketing period, although there were marketed slogans and things going on in the 1600s, 1700s. Um, but when we look at like the idea of the modern consumer era, we're talking the late 19th century and early mm-hmm. 20th century. And what I always found really cool, um, although there are academics that would disagree with me, um, is that they, the gun manufacturers were marketing to women. You know, it wasn't to men for their women. It was to women specifically. And I always thought that mm-hmm. was really interesting. I mean, the ads themselves are very much a culture of their time. You know, the little lady, sure. you know, while the husband's off at war and, um, yeah. you know, if you want to attract all the men that and I feel like that still goes on today. But, um, you know, all of those kind of ads, they recognized women as a consumer. And, you know, they also uh, elevated professional shooters. There's uh, there was a woman. Um, oh, gosh, her name is wasn't Topper Wine, who's another really famous uh, professional mm-hmm. shooter. Her name is if. Oh, Mrs. Harrison. And I, I, only remember, I can't remember her first name only because the ad said Mrs. Harrison. Um, but she was in an Ithaca ad um, in the early 1900s. Uh, although there were some weird ads uh, marketed to women and families. Uh, there was there's an ad series um, in the early 1900s where it was after the development of a safety mechanism for double action revolvers. Uh, where the marketing was accidental discharge impossible, which we know today you do not say ever. <laughs> um, right, and right. So the but there's one ad specifically where there's this little girl in bed. It's a drawing, not an actual. You know, obviously it's a little cameras are around, but not necessarily that quality by that point. Um, where it's a little girl pointing the gun at her face. And oh my goodness. The, yeah, it's it's mortifying. And the the caption says, "Papa says it won't hurt me." 
Like literally the <laughs> most cringeworthy thing I've ever seen. Um, now they figured it out because like within five years that ad still was circulating, but she was holding it in her lap <laughs> and she's in bed too. It's so creepy. Um, you know, yeah. she's like going to sleep. Um, so they definitely did not, you know, always hit their mark on, you know, when we look back from like a present standpoint of like on those ads, like a lot of people roll their eyes. But to me, I think the important part about that though is the acknowledgement that women were a consumer. So yeah, they may right. have been speaking in a way that we find kind of mortifying, but that's the culture of the time. And also, you know, they're still a consumer. And so that's really interesting. And then that continues. And I don't want to like go on too long about it. But the joke that I said about things not changing was in the 80s. Um, well, I could talk about some ads. But those were not geared towards women. They just featured women. But in the 80s, um, there were still gun companies who could advertise in Ladies Home Journal, Red Book. Um, and there's a particular ad um, that I won't say the manufacturer, not to call them out, but they had old ads that sounded really similar uh, in tone towards women. And they ran an ad that was also very similar in the wording of it. And it caused them to get ejected from Ladies Home Journal and all these things because they felt like it was intentionally fear mongering to women. Uh. And that, that was not the way that you spoke to women, um, you know, in, you know, in the 1980s. So I always joke that like they they just like. They had the same marketing slogan, but they you know, they they modernized it a little bit, but not enough. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's interesting that your your take is that you know women were and are consumers, and I think that now especially we see you know innovation in not just you know women's gear, but you know universal fit and you know being able to modify and qualities and like soft shooting ammunition, all of that stuff today versus back then. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, there was there were clothing ads marketed to women for, you know, shotgun clothing and everything. I mean, it really yeah. is. It's interesting because they've been involved so much, but we do, you know, there are more women involved. We know that today, but it almost sometimes feels like we do ourselves a disservice by making it sound like it's a new phenomenon, but it really, mm. it really isn't. Um, and, you know, there was, a, a, there's a group of women that I wrote uh, my research paper on in, or in graduate school, uh, which I always find really funny because I said this at a rally speech where, you know, currently today, you know, third wave feminists tend to scoff at women who want to own guns for self-defense. And a lot of women who own guns for self-defense scoff at third wave feminists. But in the 60s and 70s, during the second, second wave of feminism, very, very, very radical leftist women were creating pamphlets that had really good information. They were quoting the NRA, you know, the you know all of the different um, standard catalog, the guides to understanding firearms. They were creating underground pamphlets and teaching people to arm themselves uh, for their purposes. You know, one group of the second wave was to topple the patriarchy completely. But they're still, you know, this idea of refuse to be a victim kind of right. starts with them. Um, and like, there were all these women pamphlets, um, in this 1975, there's a great one and the content's colorful, but it's also really good information. And they have information about the different laws and how you need to understand the laws, um, in order to, you know, properly, you know, carry a gun, even though they weren't necessarily concerned with laws all the time when it came to firearms, right. they wanted to make sure that they were, you know, in check. And what was interesting was, and I've never tracked the specific linkage to see if there really is 
um, a change. But, you know, in the 1970s, there was all these women's pamphlets done by feminists, done by radical um, activists. And the, the, the lingo, the, the information they're putting out there, the wording they're putting out there is so similar to what we saw um, in the 80s from the gun community. And then also when you got the NRA's Refused to Be a Victim program. And like, I would love to be able to find like a actual connection, you know, that like the feminists, yeah. like that they knew, like they heard this, this rhetoric coming from other people. But what I said at the rally was the irony of this dissonance between feminists and female gun owners is that they really have each other to thank for where they are today, you know? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I just always love that because to me, it's this moment of like, we can be so different and have so much anger, you know, towards and hostility towards one another. But if you go back in the history, you can see that this wasn't like, you know, that we really aren't that different. Um, just because we feel like we are today, there are there is interconnectivity to very polarized groups. And that's why I love history, because I can just blow everybody's minds. <laughs> talking about, you know, the, the types of people that were carrying guns. And I find those ladies fascinating. If, I mean, they're a little scary, but I. I do find it fascinating. <laughs> and the work that they were putting out was really quality. Nice. That's that's neat. Um, kind of along these lines, but a little bit of shifting gear uh, with your talking about speaking and, and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, one of the things I greatly admire about you is your ability to communicate so clearly. Um, and obviously, your historical knowledge is fantastic. And I want to read a quote from your testimony for the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution okay. in the hearing on, on gun violence and ghost guns, you said, quote, firstly, I will not be using the term ghost gun, and that's because as a historian, I try to be as precise as possible, and the term is used more as a rhetorical tool, a marketing tool, and because of that, it can create a false sense of authority on the subject. Boom. <laughs> you didn't say boom, but <laughs> and and this is just part of it. And your your testimony went viral in the Second Amendment yeah. community, uh, and it, it was really neat. And and that's just a part of it, obviously. But talking about firearms from a historical perspective, that's your job, right? But you have a presence and a knack for both simplifying and providing some really intense detail. Do you have advice for our listeners? on how they can communicate better, especially when it comes to guns, ammo, gear, that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, so I spoke at a rally last weekend, maybe a couple weekends ago. Um, and I I reuse that line. <laughs> you know, if it's a good line, you know, you got to reuse it. It's a great line. But um, in my field, and this is why I love what I do, because obviously, you know, I own firearms. We can all, you know, deduce what we want about, you know, that. But my job is not to tell you what to think. My job is to provide you with information so that you can make informed decisions on your own. Um, because there's just not a lot of information out there for people who want to access it that's not political, uh, politically oriented or driven. So uh, when I spoke at the rally, the point of the entire you know five minutes was words matter. And mm -hmm. one thing I didn't take a jab at with the gun community, but I wanted to, but then I looked at the audience and was like, I don't want to get like booed off the stage, uh, was words do matter. And I can talk about that in two ways. Um, so the biggest way that words matter, and if you're trying to you know, communicate outside of the industry um, in the community, it's that understanding that there are terms that are being used 
that are marketing terms that are being used to to mislead um, a lot of people. So when when you hear the word assault weapons, so I worked on the California assault weapons case. You know, it's not helpful if you're talking to a non-gun person to jump on them and be like, that's not a real term, that's stupid, you know, blah, 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 blah. The way I approach it is the term that they're using evokes an emotion or that false sense of authority on what it is that the government is trying to regulate. Um, so a lot of people think they actually they don't really know what they what they think on it. You know, some that know maybe know a little bit about guns, they'll say semi-automatics, they'll say those things. But when you actually look at the fine print, the wording that is used in assault weapons bans, I'll use as the keep using as the example, doesn't actually ban anything other than some largely cosmetic features. You know, the technology I think that a lot of people in their minds are perceiving as getting regulated is not getting regulated. Um, so instead of jumping down their throats about a term they hear, um, and I would argue on the same side, those people need to, you know, be able to have a resource to find that information out. And right now that right. resource is the gun community. So stop yelling at everything, <laughs> stop yelling at them because they don't know. I mean, they're they're taking their, you know, their politicians, a lot of the the people that they hear speak, for their word. And that was why I said to the politicians, whether you're doing it intentionally or unintentionally for whatever reason, you are misleading people because they're thinking you're doing this when really you're doing that. Um, you know, so with that, I've been pointing out to my friends, because I do have friends that are anti-gun. I work in the academic community. My point to them has been, if you believe that assault weapons, and I, you know, I'm gonna use the term people are get mad at me, but if you believe that banning assault weapons will help, you know, violence in the United States then you should be equally as angry as a gun person who knows that things aren't being regulated because you're being misled. You know, so nothing of which you think is happening is actually happening. And so right. it's a it's a unifying moment that both sides should be really angry because, you know, nothing is really happening. You know, everything looks like it's happening. It's being marketed too. So the marketing terms are really important from understanding from both perspectives and then recognizing that that information is hard to come by. So I'm, I'm working on it, but I'm one person, um, you know, and I'm actually founding a research center for that with the University of Wyoming. But, uh, you know, that, that idea of the marketing terms, but then the little jab that I take at the gun industry is that we also eat each other alive for not getting the terminology right. Um, and I would really like to see that stop. I mean, people come at me, all the time and i'm like well this is odd you know for using the term i use as assault rifle and people really don't like that term um but yeah. historically speaking there is a definition a precise definition for what an assault rifle is through the defense intelligence agency um you know and what i've learned in the gun community is that you know there are people that don't like the term assault rifle because of the you know the action of it you know guns don't assault each other um so there's that group of people that will yell at you for that but as i tell them you don't have to like it you don't have to use it but that doesn't make it not a thing. Um, it doesn't make it not real. Uh, but then there's also the camp of people, even in the gun community, that conflate assault rifle and assault weapon, just like they do outside the gun community. So recognizing within our own selves that you know if we are the people that can communicate to people who don't understand firearms, that we need to not attack each other so much and make sure that all of our ducks are in a row in our understanding of it. And then when we take it, to people that maybe don't know or are genuinely curious, uh, making sure that we are also understanding of where they're coming from. I mean, obviously if someone's yelling at you and super emotional, like maybe just don't engage in that conversation unless, you, unless you're that kind of person, I'm not. Um, right. But if someone's <laughs> genuinely coming to the table and asking questions, even though you may think it's coming from like a malicious place, I found a lot of times it's coming from just ignorance. And that includes the media as well. And a lot of questions that I've gotten, I'm like, that sounds like they're trying to take a dig, but really they have just have no idea what they're talking about. And so no, that's, 
words matter is my, you know, part of that and be a good advocate within your own community and then take the knowledge that you gain from your own community and use that to help people who want to learn. Is that what you wish people knew more um, when it comes to talking about guns the most is, is how to, to speak and that their words do matter? Or is there, is there something else that you think is even more important for the Second Amendment community to talk about? Um, you know, for my profession, that would be the most important thing. But I mm. think um, if, if ever anyone's familiar with Di Muller um, and the DC project, they've actually done a really good um, job of showing a human face as well. So for me, it's not about the emotion, it's about the information. Um, mm-hmm. But because, you know, for me, if someone's emotional, you kind of can't get through that conversation. But there is a time for people understanding that, you know, the you know pro-gun control side does not own sad narratives you know they do not own trauma and traumatic narratives and so they've done a really good job of you know showing people who have backgrounds that are traumatic that involve firearms which cause them to want to carry um when i was doing an academic um, round table uh, i i sat in on a kind of community conversation and the moderator made the comment and there's like a like a room of like 100 academics and the moderator made the comment wouldn't it be great if a you know NRA member could sit across the table from a woman who lost their child in a school shooting and everyone in the audience was like yeah that'd be so great you know nodding their head and i wrote down in my notes why isn't that the same person and it's this belief that again that the people who don't like firearms are controlling the narrative, you know, that that's the only person who has sad stories to tell and that those sad stories only end up in one conclusion, which is that we should regulate firearms. And so professionally, like I said, words are my are my area, but I did find it interesting. And I spoke to the moderator because she works on um, working with historic sites and museums on how we interpret you know, uncomfortable topics. And she grew up in Montana and used to be an NRA member and all that stuff. And so I said to her, I'm like, why isn't that the same person? And nobody thinks like that anymore. Like it's just so, we're so caught in our bubbles of, you know, distaste for one another that we don't see that there are people in the gun community that had the same trauma as the people who are in the pro gun control community that have a completely different response to it. And so I think that both of those have a lot of power and impact and need to be visible to everybody. Wow. Well, we have uh, chatted a bunch and I've loved picking your brain on not just gun stuff, but modern thought and, and communications and everything else has been fantastic. And, you know, being everything from the curator of the incredible Cody Firearms Museum at such a young age to being a woman in the industry that doesn't get little ladied very often. <laughs> I've gotten a little I old know. now, apparently. I'm not even getting carded <laughs> for drinks, so. <laughs> uh, I really would love to know what's next for you, what the gun code is, and uh, how people can keep up with everything that you're doing. So I actually started the gun code. I, people keep using that name. So like, I feel like I need to like get some swag or something. I literally just started <laughs> it. Um, you know, I, I needed a name for a single member LLC because Cody was very great to me that like when I started my career, the Cody Museum kind of didn't wasn't that visible anymore. And so they let me consult from day one. So I've been I've had this consulting business for you know a decade and so i've been doing it it just hasn't been the main obviously the main focus of my job so the gun code is just my llc 
Uh, it's not anything too exciting. It's just the the LLC I do my my business under. Um, it's but not like it's Da Vinci funny. Code. You don't have a thing. You don't have like a magic. Okay, so <laughs> I can tell you what it's actually named after, and I hope that they don't see it and come after me. But so there used to be a show on MTV called The Girl Code and The Guy Code, okay. where they would just talk about subjects and like it would just be like matter of fact, you know. And like I just was like. The gun code, because, you know, part of my job is decodifying, you know, all these terms and all these, you know, all this misinformation for the gun community and outside the gun community. So that's where it comes from is this MDV show, which is like terrible. Oh, cool. But <laughs> I thought it was cool back then. So that consulting business really has multiple facets. I like to tell people if it's firearms history related, I probably have a hand in it. So I have the expert witness side of what I do. Um, and I do civil and criminal cases in the United States and Canada. Um, so there's the expert witness side of it. And then there's also the museum side of it, which is like, you know, really what I love. I love rebuilding museums. So I've got, uh, I'm working on an exhibition up in Montana, which is connected to the Matthew Browning, um, side of the Browning family. And then I'm rebuilding the LA police museum, which I already mentioned. And I've got a couple of other museums I'm working on that I can't, um, say their names just yet. Um, but I've got other clients that I use or that use me from time to time, like the mob museum in Las Vegas. So anything that like that like so many museums that have gun collections, but not a lot of staff. So I've got the museum side of the house. Um, I'm still doing TV and producing um, when I have the time. And you know, right now, the, I feel like TV is going through a little bit of a lull of wanting gun related programming, but I'm still doing some producing and writing articles periodically for Recoil magazine uh, and a couple of other publications. And so, like I said, history. <laughs> in other areas. Oh, I totally forgot. I keep forgetting. I'm founding the University of Wyoming Law School's Firearms Research Center with George Moxery and David Kopel. Uh, I need to remember that because that's one of the bigger ones. Uh, I don't know why I keep forgetting it. It's such a huge deal. That is huge. Uh, but no, we're working on that amazing. right now. So hopefully um, we're getting funding for it. And hopefully um, come fall semester next year, it'll be up and running. That's fantastic. Well, where can people find you on the internet and uh, social media? So the most active account I have is Instagram, which I'm at history and heels on that. And that page, you get a little bit of guns, a little bit of cooking, a little bit of my dog and my pets. Um, but you definitely do get history content there. I'm at official Ashley Lubinsky on Facebook. Uh, as I tell people, I have a Twitter account, but I think Twitter is toxic. So I do not post <laughs> on it. So if you follow it, that's going to be really disappointing for you. Um, but I just didn't want anyone to take my name. So I, I still have a Twitter account. So the two places to, to follow me are Instagram or Facebook. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been so much fun. And, and I've, I've loved hearing your story oh, and you. other stories. Yeah, all the stories. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on It's Federal Season. Thanks. Good boy. It's a season with no beginning. Or end. With bonds so strong, not weather or age, or thousands of miles keep us from it. Our love for it is as varied as those who are addicted to its pursuit, a connection with the outdoors, with family, and your best friend. We plan with anticipation. We prepare and wait in silence. With tired legs and cold hands, we push on. All in hopes of hearing a call. 
silence shatters the calm. To see the approach of thundering skies and experience the instantaneous rush. For whatever your reason, this is our season. Welcome back to It's Federal Season and the News and Notes segment. Welcome back to the It's Federal Season podcast. I am your guest host, Julie Golub. I look forward to hosting several more of these episodes in the coming months. Uh, we're going to talk turkey, personal defense, the growth of high school shooting sports, and meet Federal's newest ambassador, Olympic gold medalist, Amber English. We have so much fun in store for you guys today and uh, in, in the future episodes. If you'd like to learn more uh, about me as your guest host, you can visit me at juliegollub.com or you can connect with me on social media at juliegollub. I'd love to hear from you what you thought of this episode. And then the next opportunity to connect with us is at the DOX, the Ducks Expo. That's April 8th through the 10th. And that will be at the Texas Motor Speedway outside of Fort Worth. So you want to check that out. Federal and our sister ammunition brands will be exhibiting there, as well as being a part of their shooting village where you can come out and test some federal products. If you're a federal fan, make sure you head on over to our website for some new branded apparel. You can go to federalpremium.com slash merchandise slash apparel. There are some brand new t-shirts and hats and sweatshirts that would make fantastic Mother's Day or Father's Day gifts, or if you're looking for something for yourself. Our next release for the It's Federal Season podcast will be April 7th, and we'll be talking turkey on that one. If you like what you hear on this podcast, go to our ratings and reviews section and leave us your honest feedback. 